Hey, hey, hey! What's up, everybody? We got another episode of The Strange Road coming at you. I'm your host, Mikey. And of course, as always, Bub, the co-host. Hello. And tonight, we have Stoner and Disborough in Master Control. Uh, the prodigal son returns, <laughs> There they are. Look at that guy. Hard Woo! at work. Stoner and Disbro, you guys rule, making everything look and sound dope as usual. Looking like Area 51 in there. (laughs) (laughs) All right, man. We got a great episode tonight. Uh, But first off, you guys can find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Go check out that Facebook group. If you're here on YouTube watching, like, subscribe, hit that notification bell, share it with your friends. Um, That way you get all the information and, and know when we're doing live streams and when shorts come out and all these other things we're doing so uh if you're listening on spotify apple or anywhere else keep writing those reviews you guys have heard us thank you you're hitting those reviews you're hitting those five stars five stars or bust um you guys are all doing it uh you're killing it you're crushing it and we appreciate the hell out of each and every one of you uh make sure you go follow necro mechanimal on instagram he's always doing that artwork for the show we appreciate him so so much and tonight we have a fantastic guest for you guys. Uh, we have one of the returning champs of the Strange Road, Jeffrey Wilson. That's true. Jeff, how you doing tonight? I'm doing well. Returning yeah. champ. That's funny. <laughs> this, is, well, this is round three. This is four. Four? Yes. Four, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the fourth episode. Um, yeah. So what did we, and where did I miss one? We did uh, the very the first one here, which was the second. The first in-studio guest we had was Jeff. And then we did the preview for this Friends of the Serpent Mound yeah. event, which yeah. is here in studio. That's the one you're missing. Oh, that's the one I'm missing. And then yeah. we did wow. the live <laughs> wow. from Serpent Mound. Right. That's, yeah. Uh, from the Friends wow. of the Serpent Mound yeah. Summer Solstice event. Oh, which you, you are guys definitely had the out. international And that was the crop circle. That was uh, a crop circle episode. And so here we are with Jeffrey, and we are going to be discussing his new book. A lot of our uh, listeners have a little bit of background, but I kind of want to do a quick intro. Give us a little bit of background, a refresher. On the book or myself? On yourself. Oh, okay. And then we can kind of talk about everything that's going on. Well, um, for the past uh, nearly 20 years, uh, the anniversary will be next year, um, I have been uh, a volunteer and hold, held a bunch of different offices in the Friends of Serpent Mound, which is a 501c3 nonprofit that really advocates for the education uh, of the public on these prehistoric earthwork sites, advocates for their preservation. Hmm. Uh, we do all kinds of educational programs about those things. Uh, we did a lot of volunteer work at Serpent Mound in the early days, and um, I uh, had a background in uh, astronomy. I took uh, my graduate work was in physics and astronomy at uh, Eastern Michigan University. Nice. Um, so I've done a lot of different things, but yeah. uh, most recently, obviously, is my my book is finally out. This was a, a monumental. Project. Congratulations. To Congratulations. Way, way, way longer than I ever thought it was going to take. Uh, I joked with a friend of mine. I When I first began this project, I said, when I first uncovered the um, original material that made up the initial bulk of the book, I said to him, oh, yeah, I think I can I can do this in 
have it done by February. And this was <laughs> out like beginning of December. <laughs> and well, that came and went and went a whole nother year. And that following February, I thought I was done writing. And I saw that I wrote to him. And I said, yeah, I just got the wrong February. And <laughs> well, that came and went and that went another six months. And you know, now it's done. Now it's available. and you know, That's awesome. So. That's awesome. That's so great. It's uh, if you saw some of the pictures I posted, I don't know if you saw a picture that I posted about the actual soft cover editions. If you stack them up, it, to me, it was like writing the yellow pages phone book. I mean, it's yeah. like three and a half inches. Uh, Good it's over, grief. you know, over 1300 pages. So combined, so it's an enormous project. Wow. <laughs> so I, I just never thought that it would be that much work. Um, I thought this was going to be a lot simpler, but as I went into it, the more depth I went into it, I just found more stuff that I just could not believe that this material had never been previously published. And, uh, that's, you know, kind of, some of the stuff that I'm going to show tonight is is literally just a tiny fraction of what's in this book. But what I'm going to show you has never been published before. Uh, and these are historical maps, historical illustrations, historical drawings from uh, 175 to 200 years ago. Wow. Um, about the earthworks in this area. And uh, it was just absolutely astonishing to me that it had never been published, but that it had never even been referenced in the archaeological community. Right. Um, you know, and so that's really what the book is about, is largely um, taking this book that was written 175 years ago called Ancient Monuments of the Mississippi Valley by two authors by the name of Squire and Davis. The book has become somewhat famous. Um, yeah for being the reference guide to all the early earthworks in Ohio and some of the surrounding states. And it is continually referenced to this day. People go back and always reference the illustrations that are in that book. Right. Um, and so what I found were all of the original source drawings and illustrations that were used for the book. But they've never been seen. They've never been published. And there are a lot of differences between what got published in these original survey drawings by not just Squire and Davis, but by others, which I can talk about. Um, but the sort of amazing thing about them is how that impacts the real world. Like the original survey works place certain mounds and earthworks in certain locations that today we have no idea where those earthworks are located because a lot of it's been destroyed by development and so on and so forth. And so a lot of archaeologists go back to the published maps, but the published maps are different than these original survey maps because of the printing process back in the 1840s. And I could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, it's a, kind of an interesting story as to how it all came together. But... Uh, I originally did not set out to write this book. Um, what I originally was working on is I've been working on kind of a comprehensive volume about Serpent Mound for a long time. And one of the things that I decided to do was to go back to this book by Squire and Davis, Ancient Miners of the Mississippi Valley, 
because it had the very first published reference to Serpent Mound in it. Oh, wow. And so I wanted to kind of review what they had said and kind of fact check it right. to see, you know, what was real and what was wrong. You yeah. know, a little side they by made, side. They only wrote five paragraphs about Serpent Mound, so it's not really that difficult to review it. They did make several factual errors in their five paragraphs, but the thing that I kind of noticed was there's a f- famous illustration of Serpent Mount. I think if I move forward a couple slides. <clears throat> uh, down is up. Down is up? Yeah. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Um, oh, there's a beautiful artwork, Those, those by are the, way. the book covers, but yeah. let me go forward here. So this illustration of Serpent Man, which was in the book, um, is – is always been credited. All the illustrations in this book are largely when when the book is referenced by other people, they always reference these illustrations as being by Squire and Davis. But that is not the case, and I and I realize that by looking at this illustration of Serpent Mound, it is a lithograph, and they hired a lithographer to make this. Okay. Okay. Um, all of the major full-page illustrations in the original book, Ancient Monuments of the Mississippi Valley, were done by a lithographic team uh, by the name of Cerrone and Major out of New York City. And so this is the work by Cerrone and Major. Okay. That may just astonish people to begin with. Like, right. wait, you're telling me that all everything that's credited to Squire Davis isn't their work? No, wow. it's not. All of the major illustrations are done by Cerrone and Major. And you may think, well, who are those guys? Well, um, both of them got their start at a, another famous uh, lithographic company you may have heard of, uh, Courier and Ives, the famous Christmas uh, card yes. people. So Cerrone and Major Whoa. were trained by Nathaniel Courier at Courier and Ives, and then they left and went to start their own company. And uh, hmm. they did some famous lithographs uh, during the Mexican-American War, uh, which caught the attention of Squire, and he hired them to do the lithographs. Hmm. There are also a couple hundred other illustrations in the book, smaller ones. Those were uh, done by woodcut engravers. Uh, and the woodcut engraving company of Orr and Richardson, Nathaniel Orr and James Richardson, they did all of the smaller illustrations. So everything that's in the book is essentially either Orr and Richardson's woodcuts or Cerrone and Major's lithographs. And what's important about that and what led me down this path to discover all this stuff is understanding the process of lithography, all right? So you got to think, what is the technology back in 1847 to be able to make your illustrations in a book? Well, you go to a company, an art, art company, and you give them an illustration, and they then copy that onto their lithographic plate. And it's a very manual process. Mm. It's a stone plate covered in wax, And then they have to take your illustration and redraw it into the wax in mirror reverse. 
So they're scraping all of that wax away. They apply an acid to the surface. It doesn't eat away at the wax, but it etches the illustration into the stone. They clear, clean that off, apply the ink, stamp that to the paper. That's your image. Okay, That's how those lithographs are made. It's not like a Xerox process. Right. They don't get yeah, exactly. it 100% right. And so errors are made between those. And so I thought, well, where can I find the original illustration? Has anyone ever asked that? I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) And so I said, could I find this needle in a haystack somewhere still around after 175 years? Well, not only did I find the one for Serpent Mound... But I ended up finding about 95% of all the illustrations that went into the into making ancient monuments in Mississippi wow. Valley. And so when I f- stumbled upon this stuff, um, that was a project in and of itself, yeah. was just to review the material. Because this happened during the pandemic. And so lots of archives were shut down, uh, including the one where I f- sort of began and found the uh, you know, drawing for Serpent Mound, for instance, um, was at the Library of Congress. Library of Congress's archives are shut down because of the pandemic. So I'm literally emailing back and forth with curators about what I can, uh, you know, have access to mm-hmm. and what I can't. Um, and I was trying to look at, they have a collection of Squire's papers at the Library of Congress. And I wanted to review that material. But because the archive is closed, you can't come in person to look at that in D.C., right? So they said that they had an alternate solution. And that was back in 1971, which is, I was like two years old, the uh, Library of Congress photo duplication service photographed the entire collection in black and white. And they could send me the film through interlibrary loan. And it was on 14 rolls of positive film. And so I think I have a slide maybe in here that, let's see if I can get that up, um, that will show that. We'll skip these guys here for a second and we'll come back to them. Wow, Jeff. <laughs> so here, one little there's, thing. There's Napoleon Cerrone, by the way. <clears throat> oh, wow. Uh, I never like found a, a photograph of Henry Major. This lithograph here is of the Americans uh, fighting with the Mexicans in Mexico City. That's cool. And uh, this was a very famous lithograph uh, for the time. He's this Napoleon Cerrone is quite the character too, by the way. But I can come back to him. What I wanted to show these are the woodcutters. Okay, so this is what I was dealing with. You have a thirty-five millimeter film strip, which each frame of those images are less than one inch by one inch. Right. And then on that, the photographer from the Congressional Photo Duplication Service has managed to put in the frame multiple pages. Sure. Sometimes they overlap. Sometimes they're curled or crumpled or whatever. And so this is what I had to deal with. So it's not great to sift through and And break down and really investigate. Maybe it's some that's obscured even, right? But considering how small these images were, 
I ended up having to scan this at 19,200 dots per inch. Normal <clears throat> normal photo, photographic reproduction is like 600 dots per inch. 300 Maybe to 600. 300 yeah. to 600. Yeah. <laughs> so I had to scan this at 19,200 dots per inch just to get an image that I could then blow up to normal size to review. All right. I spent weeks in the library reviewing the 12,000 pages in the Squire collection. There's thousands of letters from all kinds of different people. Yeah. Holy cow. And, and, and I hate to interrupt real quick, no but just, just give people an idea of when you're dealing with that kind of resolution, how long that scan takes. Yeah. To process. It is moving <laughs> yeah. so unbelievably slow. Right, yeah. So each yeah. time you're trying to make a scan mm-hmm. is like watching paint dry. Yes. And uh, there were um, 14 <clears throat> rolls of film that I ended up accessing. Wow. 12,000-something documents. I had to go through it all. And it was on roll 12 that I found the bulk of the material. And so I was just literally going oh. through, making my eyes bleed, looking at, you know, 1800s cursive writing scratch. Yeah. You know, but you're legitimately stuff. that meme of the guy digging in the tunnel. <laughs> right. And like the one guy turns around and gives up yeah. and you keep digging because you That's know right. that that payoff. Yeah. You know, you, well, I didn't know for sure. I, I well, just got a hunch. I had, I had a hunch. You got a yeah. hunch. But you got to follow that hunch, I guess, is what I'm trying to yeah. say. Yes. Wow. So That's, That's so wild. So when I, when I discovered the first image, which was on that very first slide, if I go all the way back to the beginning, whoop, I'm going forward here. Man, that's cool. Those are so um, cool. The, uh, on, the, on the very first slide, opening slide, there's a picture in here, the one that's all the way on the far left. Okay. That's Mound City mm-hmm. in Chillicothe, Ohio. And that one is the first one I saw. I literally called up an archaeological friend of mine in the library, and I said, you're not going to believe what I just found. Um, and he, he was astonished by just this one image that any one of these causes, like, major ripples in the archaeological community because none of this stuff has been seen before. God. And, like, to find one was, like, astonishing. Yeah. To find hundreds was like almost incomprehensible. Um, and so that's what this whole story is really about is yeah. finding this material. Sure. Right. So, uh, in any event, um, I did happen to find the serpent man image, you know, from this, uh, you know, start. And that's when I, you know, I said to him on the phone, I really think that what needs to happen is to take these original, illustrations and integrate them into the original book. So if you take the original book, then, you know, once you hit one of these illustrations, you can insert all of these additional illustrations with some historical commentary to talk about, you know, where this is found, whatever. And that would make a really cool book. And that's what I decided to do. I had no idea how difficult it was going to be when I started. Yeah, so... Well, uh, just to give you a nice sense of the original authors, this is Ephraim George Squire in his later years, um, because uh, Squire, he's the principal author of ancient monuments. He wrote all the words in the book. All right. And he 
redrew many of the illustrations that went to the lithographers and the woodcutters to make the book. He was um, an interesting character, to be sure. His background is really interesting. Uh, He um, grew up in New York. He's from New York State. His father was a minister, dragged him around to an itinerant minister, you know, going from place to place or whatever. Okay. Uh, I think his mother died when he was like 10 or 12 years old. Um, He ended up going to school for civil engineering. But this is the 1830s during Jacksonian America. You know, Andrew Jackson Mm -hmm. was very famous for causing this massive economic disaster in the 1830s for being opposed to reauthorizing the Bank of of the United States, right? Okay. And so because they didn't Congress didn't reauthorize it or he was going to veto it one of, one of the two, um it caused an economic crisis in the country. And the other thing that he was opposed to was any government spending on any infrastructure project. Mm. And so uh, there was no money for any civil engineering projects across the United States. No Jesus. bridges being built, no roads being built, no, you know, no, nothing, you know, uh, right. no canals, none of this stuff. And so Squire trained to be a civil engineer and then, you know, finished out of schooling and there were no jobs because the economy and that was pinned on Andrew Jackson and his policies. Oh, right? wow. Wow. So Squire... <clears throat> became a Whig opposed political. to Jacksonian Democrat. Right. right. Whigs are former political party for anyone that doesn't right. know. Wigging about that. Yeah. Yeah. And Howard so uh, about the same time that he was finishing up his schooling, uh, or he had finished, he first became a teacher, didn't like doing that. And so then he decided to... Uh, become a newspaper uh, writer. And he started his own newspaper. And this was the first of his many financial schemes. Uh, He Hmm. sort of had this kind of fraudulent scheme that he would produce a newspaper, send it out to subscribers who didn't ask for it. And there was a law in the books at the time that uh, postal inspectors it was called the law of newspapers and the postal inspectors could go to a person that received a newspaper and collect the uh, subscription fee and then pass that back to the newspapers. If they weren't paying their subscription fee, they they were like the enforcement arm of the newspapers. And so Squire's scheme was, I'll just send it out to a zillion people and then get the postal inspectors to get the money. (laughs) Wow. And, uh, what a shake guy. That's a racket, <laughs> sir. That's that a was, racket. That was his first racket. And yeah. so he uh, he kind of failed at that because the postal inspectors <laughs> kind of refused to enforce his uh, collection effort. But nevertheless, uh, about the same time that he was working on that, um, in New York City, there was an, the kind of the first labor organization that kind of arose. Um, it was a mechanics union. Okay. And this mechanics union um, kind of got upset with the state of New York because they were using prison labor 
to do the mechanics jobs sure and undercutting their pay Shawshank and, Redemption yeah look so, away take the money and take so that. they decided to kind of hold a rally in Albany and have a convention there to kind of put some political pressure on the state to, to yep. stop that practice. And uh, one of the things that they determined to do <laughs> was to uh, create a newspaper as kind of a lobbying arm. Hmm. And so this Mechanics Union newspaper began, hmm. and Squire was hired to be the editor of it. And um, he ended up writing a history of the labor movement in Europe and in America. And he had that published in New York City. He gave uh, an address to the labor union there and one in Baltimore. He was like a huge labor uh, union organizer. Uh before Karl Marx and Engels started their ideas of communism in Europe, he was about two or three years ahead of them. Hmm. And you can read through his labor, a history of labor and labor hmm. movements. It's really fascinating because almost all of it is kind of attributed later to Marx and Engels. Uh, he was ahead of them. And wow. um, he... Um, then got fired from his mechanics union job because he was such a political firebrand. The mechanics union wanted to be apolitical. They did not want to take one side, political side or the other. Right. And so he was definitely against Jacksonian de Democrats. And so they ousted him. And he went to work for another newspaper in Connecticut in the anticipation of the next presidential election in 18. 44. Hmm. And uh, of course, the Democrats won again. Whigs lost again. And uh, he did not, that didn't pan out well for him. Uh, and, the, and so he had to take another job elsewhere. And he got offered two jobs one in Baltimore, Maryland, and one in Chillicothe, Ohio, to be the editor of those different respective newspapers. Okay. And Squire said, there is no way I am going to work in a slave state. He was dramatically opposed to slavery and so drew a line in the sand. Even though the paper was bigger, bigger circulation, he would have gotten paid more. He went to work in Chillicothe because he was not going to work in a slave state. Wow. So he goes to Chillicothe and within a couple of days meets his co-author, uh, Edwin Hamilton Davis. And uh, Davis had been uh, a mound aficionado for about a decade before Squire shows up in town. Now, the interesting thing is, so Squire shows up in Chillicothe at the beginning of 1845 at the age of 24 years old. Wow. Okay. Hmm. So he'd done all of that other prior stuff. That's crazy. <laughs> He's still a young dude. Yeah. And wow. Davis, Davis wow, was wow. 31. And he was he was a medical mm. doctor. So uh, here's oh, there's Davis. Here's Edwin Hamilton Davis. Um, Davis was a medical doctor. He got he went to Kenyon College here in Ohio. Then he went to Cincinnati for his medical degree. While he was um, at this other college, um, he excavated his first mounds. Mm. 
and he gave a commencement speech address regarding the mounds in Ohio. And attending that commencement speech address was um, Daniel Webster, Senator Daniel Webster from the East Coast, uh, related to the dictionary guy, Noah Webster. Nice. And uh, Daniel Webster was looking to maybe uh, have a presidential bid, and so he was touring around the country, and he attended this event, listened to Davis give his speech, and went up to him afterwards and in encouraged him to continue to do that and said, hey, maybe you ought to think about putting together an organization to preserve these mounds. That didn't happen, but nevertheless, Davis continued on. When he went to a medical college in Cincinnati, the guy who founded that was a guy by the name of Dr. Daniel Drake, who was another mound aficionado. He started doing surveys of mounds and earthworks uh, in the some starting around 1807, and uh, up into the early 1820s. Hmm. Uh, so Daniel Drake was doing what Squire and Davis did 20, 25 years before them. Wow. And we'll see a couple of Daniel Drake's uh, things. I stumbled upon his papers, and none of that's been published before. And so I published a bunch of Daniel Drake's man surveys, uh, which are probably the very earliest of any of the man surveys in uh, wow. that, that exist. Um, so I put together a bunch of those. So, uh, nevertheless, uh, Davis here, um, I was very interested to find out that there exists a manuscript at the National Anthropological Archives written around eight years or nine years after Ancient Monuments came out, and you can see a picture of it there, sketches of wow. ancient mounds, uh, monuments. He put this color manuscript together for publication, and it never was published. Mm. And a bunch of the material in there is stuff that showed up um, in Ancient Monuments of the Mississippi Valley by Squire. Davis's name was added to that manuscript later, and I can talk mm. about how that happened. Mm, uh, never but, knew that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, Nevertheless, um, you can see there are a few illustrations from his book there of some of the uh, effigy mound pipes. I've got some more illustrations in here later. We can talk about that. Though I uh, published all of the color illustrations that were relevant to ancient monuments in my new edition because it, ancient monuments was in black and white, and so you can't really get a sense of the true color of any of that stuff. Right. Uh, but with Davis's illustrations, you can. They're near photographic replicas and color. Just say, he's a pretty and, damn good artist. Well, he didn't do a lot of the artwork. Um, right. He hired an artist gotcha. to do some of that work, and, but the guy the guy did an unbelievable right. job. And so they're, they're pretty amazing. And he, he uh, got a chance to match the color with the actual artifacts. So he was doing these, you know, amazing color reproductions. Um, but uh, for whatever reason, the Smithsonian chose not to publish it. And uh, so now I've been able to publish a lot of it. So if they won't do it. Somebody needs to. <laughs> right. Now, here's a guy that you might never heard of um, that is kind of crucial to ancient monuments, the Mississippi Valley, the original book. This is the editor, Joseph Henry, from the Smithsonian. He's the guy that agreed to publish the book. Um 
and uh, there's a statue of him there out in front of the Smithsonian's uh, what they call the Castle Building in Washington, D.C. When uh, Joseph Henry died, they commissioned this statue, and when they went to unveil it, they made a big production out of it. They hired the uh, composer John Philip Sousa yeah. to com- compose the Venus March uh, for the transit of Venus, um, which was happening at simultaneously. And uh, so you can go online and uh, play that. I don't think he has this hooked up to so you can hear the sound, but uh, it is in my presentation there. Uh, you can hear the, you know— Upbeat John, it's a typical John Sue, you know, Philip Sousa March, uh, which was written for the unveiling of Joseph Henry's statue at the Smithsonian. Love it. But uh, Henry was a physicist. Uh, He was interested in electricity and magnetism. Uh, He invented the very first electric motor. He, uh, a lot of uh, the early sort of discoveries of electricity and magnetism attributed to people like Michael Faraday and James Clerk Maxwell actually were done by Joseph Henry um, at Princeton, but Henry didn't get it published before those guys, so they got most of the credit, but he had already figured it out, Uh, so he's an interesting character. But he got hired to... um, uh, become the first uh, sort of general secretary of the uh, Smithsonian, um, which began in 1845 or 46, um, just a couple years before uh, Ancient Monuments was published. It was, you know, the Smithsonian was kind of established from a gift from this wealthy industrialist in, in England yep. who had never even been to the United States, right, right. James yep. Smithson. And um, mm-hmm. the gift was, uh, you know, to Congress to establish this, uh, you know, organization. And so they did. And he became their first secretary. And he was intent on putting together an organization to sort of promote science and, you know, he was a scientist. He wanted to do that kind of scientific work. And uh, this sort of manuscript got steered his way, which was uh, Squire's manuscript, uh, Ancient Monuments in the Mississippi Valley. Uh, the reason it came their way is um, Squire and Davis's partnership <clears throat> of surveying mounds in Ross County, Ohio, you know, where Chillicothe is. Um, the, the arrangement was Davis was the senior partner and Squire was considered the junior partner because Davis, who was about uh, seven or eight years older, yeah. had a medical degree, had a medical practice and could afford to do this work. Um, had already been for about a decade looking at mounds and mm. uh, it had one of the finer collections of artifacts already at that point. Squire shows up, doesn't know anything about anything, but is interested and so and has you know some some engineer civil engineering background. So he he kind of can make maps and draw, draw stuff. Yeah, and so he's the junior partner. And so as they went along and excavated more mounds and visited more sites, they would hire teams of diggers to do most of the work. They didn't really do a lot of the work themselves. All these unnamed people that we have no idea who did all the work, um, they uh, would, uh, you know, 
collect whatever they found, take it back to Davis's place. Davis would spend his time cleaning the artifacts, categorizing them, collecting them, identifying what the materials were, all the science stuff. Yeah. Uh, Davis did. Okay. And then Squire decided he was going to write a book and he writes this manuscript. Uh, Davis doesn't have his name on it. Um, Squire kind of gets frustrated at Davis because Davis, who's paying for everything and getting everything, um, and Squire feels like he's not getting anything. Squire decides that he wants to expand the operation. He goes out onto the East Coast and starts meeting with different groups for them to give them funding, right, so that maybe Squire can do it on his own without Davis. And one of the organizations that he met with was the American Ethnological Society in New York City. And the American Ethnological Society was really enthusiastic about what they were finding. Squire presented it as, you know, Squire and Davis's work. Um, and can you help fund us? And they did get a little bit of funding from them. They, um, they also, he also met with uh, the American Antiquarian Society out of near Boston, Massachusetts. And um, they were a little more meticulous in kind of figuring out and checking out their backgrounds. Um, and, in fact, uh, the the head of the American Antiquarian Society actually went to Chillicothe and visited to see what their operations were like. And while that was taking place, Squire was in New York City lobbying with the American Ethnological Society, who liked their stuff so much that the vice president, who was a publisher in New York City, his name was Barrett, he agreed to publish Squire's manuscript. And when Squire delivered the manuscript, it was so big and had so many illustrations that Barrett said there's the this organization doesn't have the financial wherewithal to be able to publish such a book. This is going to be such a costly effort. We can't do it, but we'll try to help you find somebody that can. Well, that they looked around and went, oh, that group with that gigantic pile of money called the Smithsonian, they have the financial wherewithal. And so they sent representatives from the American Ethnological Society to kind of negotiate this with the Smithsonian, and the Smithsonian agreed to do it. And so they wound up with the agreement to publish the manuscript. Now, um, Squire nearly torpedoed the entire thing because he insisted that the American Anthological Society hold up their end of the bargain of publishing something from him. And so he published in like seven or eight months before Ancient Monuments came out, he published something called Aboriginal monuments of the Mississippi Valley <laughs> with them. And it was like a mini version of ancient monuments. It was like, you know, over 100 pages. And I include that in the appendix three of, uh, of in my, my second volume or last volume of uh, my book. So you can get a chance to compare the original Aboriginal monuments with the ancient monuments That's version. So funny. Okay. Now, why this was so controversial was because only Squire's name was on Aboriginal monuments. And when it came out, 
people that knew what Squire and Davis were working on were like, where's Davis's name? <laughs> like, Davis did all the work. You know, Davis paid for everything. Davis has all the artifacts. Davis did all the cleaning of the artifacts and, you know, did all the scientific stuff. Where's Davis's name? Well, there was also stuff in Aboriginal monuments that came from other people. And one of those was a map, a survey map of the Fortified Hill in Butler County, Ohio, which I helped uh, is to uh, the Friends of Serpent Mountain was the first one to begin raising money to save that site. Yeah, I remember when you guys did and, that. Um, yeah. The site is preserved today, and you can go and visit that. Um, nice. But uh, there was a guy by the name of James McBride who had done a survey with two others uh, of that site. And James McBride's survey map wound up in that Aboriginal monuments, but not credited to the surveyors. Mm. And one of McBride's friends who noticed this um, wrote a scathing letter to one of the Cincinnati papers saying, Squire's trying to steal all of this stuff. And uh, this is not right. Those letters started to make their way to the Smithsonian. So the, the, the board of the Smithsonian leaned on Joseph Henry and said, you got to make him, uh, you know, attribute the, the material uh, that he's using for his book. And so what I uncovered was all these letters uh, that went back and forth between the Smithsonian and Squire and Davis and James McBride and a bunch of other people over the issue of attribution in the book. Uh, McBride was eventually promised to have a byline on the front page. It would say Squire, Davis, and McBride. Except that didn't happen. <laughs> well, it turns out that out of all the surveys that are in ancient monuments in the Mississippi Valley, 40% of them are from James McBride and his, and his wow. buddies. Squire and Davis only contributed 28%. Hmm. So it really should have been McBride, Davis, and Squire. Yeah, right. <laughs> but just goes to show you how credit is not truly divvied out the way it should be. No. <laughs> right? Right. Exactly. Especially back in the day when, like, everything's just the Wild West. Like, that term, the Wild West. Yeah, yeah. Literally everything. <laughs> well, Medicine, I mean, like Ohio is considered the West. Right. Time. Yeah. But, like, uh, he's doing yeah, here, how yeah. much un- uncovering do you have to, like, yeah. what yeah. I've been thinking this whole time is— like you're looking in one direction, not one direction, but you're looking in a more specific direction, right? Of what you're uncovering in these time periods of, man, look at these inconsistencies or not credit given. Yep. What happens what when you apply that in a 360 view of those time periods and go, <laughs> right? What was really, it makes you really kind of go, what was really going? Not that, you know, the earth's flat and it's not round, but I mean, how did it really shake out? How did it really come about? How did this work come about? Like, yeah. who were all the players in it and really yep. putting in their parts? And it's so important. So it turns out that um, Joseph Henry forced Squire to add Davis's name to the book. And in the um, list of lithographs in the book, he forced Squire to add who the surveyor was and who the illustrator was of all of those uh, in there. That's literally the only credit acknowledged for any of these people, for the most part. Um, 
for the list of 200 woodcut illustrations? <clears throat> Nothing. <laughs> so we, I, I, I figured out that most of those are done by other people, too. Uh, but the, no credit has been given to, you know, a lot of those people. So he had a cer- so, sort of a penance, like, hey, at least do this. All the right. other guys, whatever, we'll leave them alone. Yep. So in any event, um, Joseph Henry there, because he was a scientist, his whole intention was to start this scientific publication series of which Ancient Monuments became the first one called the Smithsonian Contributions to Knowledge, Volume 1. And— he wanted a peer review process. Now, I didn't discover this. Um, there was another uh, anthropologist from Southern Methodist University, David Meltzer, who wrote the introduction for the 150th anniversary edition of Ancient Monuments, which came out in the late 90s. And he uncovered, when he went in and dove into the history of how this book was created, um, I kind of highlight it in my book because in he wrote a 120-page introduction, and this is just a small little sliver of what he talked about in that introduction. Mm-hmm. But what he said was, um, and what he found records for, was that because of that process with the American Ethnological Society, Squire presented all of his material to them. They published Aboriginal Monuments, which caused the Smithsonian all this heartburn, right? Well— the peer review process was supposed to be that they would get a committee of people to review the manuscript, which would be masked anonymous so that they did not know who wrote it. Okay. So hmm. the five members of the committee that they sent this out to was consisted of the president, vice president, and the secretary of the American Ethnological Society and two other board members of the American Ethnological Society. Like, literally, the people who negotiated to have this manuscript go to the Smithsonian, who knew Squire and knew this work and had published a preview of the work, were the ones chosen to review the manuscript anonymously. (laughs) Okay. And so it was a sham. It was it was a fraud. And and not only not only that, they, they got the manuscript turned it around within two weeks, had their response back. And all of this is published at the beginning of the original Ancient Monuments, which is in in my book, too. Uh, You can read all of these fraudulent letters because the dating was all messed up for them to actually do the peer review. And so to solve that issue, Squire suggested that they fabricate some of the letters and they backdate some of the other letters, and they all agreed to it. The, the Smithsonian agreed to it, the American Anthropological Society agreed to it, and Squire agreed to it. And so that's what appears at the beginning, before the book begins, is this sort of section they call it the advertisement section, which is the reviews of the book by the committee. Hold on, hold on, hold, on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah. Wasn't this whole thing started for science and integrity? Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> yeah exactly. So the first <laughs> go-around, they're like, throw that out the window. Right, yeah. So it was the Smithsonian literally <laughs> yeah. was born in fraud. This, yeah, this, whole, this whole project was born in fraud to start with. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you. 
I'm which I got to give credit to David Meltzer, who got hired by the Smithsonian to write this introduction, to really like write Why that out and say, "Look, that? this is what happened here." You know, I give him a lot of credit. Oh, um, yeah, because that took some that took some guts to you know look your employer in the face and say, "Hey, your whole thing started out as a fraud." By the way, and what year did yeah, David did. Meltzer come out with all that? Uh, well, it was in the 150th anniversary edition, so I think it was like 98. Something like so, that. not that long ago. That was just discovered. Yeah, like, oh my god! Yeah. So, all you people out there, by the way, that are obsessed <laughs> with the Smithsonian cover-up, just throw the kerosene <laughs> on the fire. <laughs> Jeez, I'm, I'm like mind blown Bum right shot. now because it's one of those kind of like confirmation things. It's the admission of it. It's the like right, right. where there's smoke, there's fire type vibe. And Jeff's it got just, the receipts, the Smithsonian y'all. in general over the years of yeah. you know, there's so many can like like uh, uh, references to it in the Indiana Jones movies and stuff where they got the crates all boxed up of all the stuff. You know, yeah. But it it's kind of like. You guys are playing into it. You're not really helping really put it to the light because you're doing a bad job from the start. Like, hopefully you yeah. got it turned around. Yeah, you would hope. Uh, you know, I'm, they haven't. But uh, in any event, uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a fun fun little story there. <laughs> they have not. To show a few of the other contributors, the other major contributors, I should say. James yeah. McBride up there in the upper left. I mentioned James McBride. He um, He – really deserves a lot of the credit for ancient monuments. Um, like I said, about 40% of all the surveys that are in ancient monuments, a number of the artifacts pictured or hit were from his collection. He was friends with uh, Davis. And so Davis took Squire out to meet James McBride. And McBride had... Uh, been surveying uh, mounds uh, in the western half of the state down the Miami River Valley, essentially, um, since the 1820s and maybe even as early as the, like 1811-ish. Um, he uh, had amassed uh, dozens and dozens of maps of sites. He had a friend that was, he had a couple of friends who were civil engineers that worked on the Miami uh, Canal out that way. And he um, and his cohorts, they would go and do all these maps of all these sites over there. Um, he had a huge collection of artifacts um, that he decided at one point that he was going to compile all of his material um, he had these meticulous field notebooks that he had, and then he recopied all of that material in just immaculate pen and ink and had them leather-bound into these leather-bound volumes, of which he had uh, four of them. The first two are all, like, watercolor, near-photographic reproductions of of all of his artifacts, how much did they weigh, how big they were, measurements, and all kinds of stuff. Wow. And then the last two volumes are all the map surveys. And uh, I tracked down all of his original papers. Um, unfortunately, I was not allowed to uh, reproduce anything from his leather-bound volumes in my book. Uh, those are in possession of the Ohio History Connection. Um, but... All of the stuff that those volumes are based on, his original 
papers are at the University of Georgia. And the University of Georgia um, allowed me to reproduce all of it. Wow. And so all of that material is in my volumes. Never been published before, never been cited before. I, I should say that. It has been cited by one other person he, who reproduced one illustration from McBride's stuff at the University of Georgia um, uh, in, a, in a book called Relic Hunters, uh, which came out about five years ago. Um, but nevertheless, um, McBride's stuff was really illuminating. Uh, <clears throat> what, what I tended to find was that uh, McBride loaned Squire all of it. All of his papers, the leather-bound volumes, all his, all of his notes and field notes, and you know, sketch drawings, everything. He loaned it all to Squire. Squire took it to New York for the production of the illustrations for ancient monuments, and used it all. Right, and like he copied it all, and <laughs> and the descriptions that are in ancient monuments of these sites that McBride surveyed yeah. are sort of watered-down, slimmed-down versions of what McBride himself had written. So Squire sort of plagiarized much of McBride's work, in, and so I have all of those transcribed, uh, you know, oh, wow. descriptions yeah. that accompany, uh, you know, McBride's stuff in my book. Very cool. So that you can compare and contrast the yeah. pieces. Um, the second guy on that upper level there, Colonel Charles Whittlesley, he provided about 19 to 20% of all of the surveys in ancient monuments. Um, he did almost the entirety of all that work for the Ohio Geological Survey of 1837 and 1838. Uh, 1837, 1838 was just before the economic collapse uh, in the country from Jackson's policies. Mm. Um, and when the economic collapse happened, that ended the Ohio Geological Survey. All and, right. And so, but prior to that, he he and and several other people, including uh, the other top two guys in that in that row, uh, Samuel Hildreth and Dr. John Locke, those three guys and a couple other guys were part of the Ohio Geological Survey, and they were tasked with, you know, surveying the geology across the state. Uh, the only other state that had done it at up to that point was New York, and when New York's was complete, they hired the guy who was in charge of what what New York had done to be the head of uh, for Ohio. Okay, and uh, they hired uh, Whittlesley, and they got Hildreth and Locke to work on it, and um, they not just did the geology, but anytime they encountered earthworks, they also surveyed the earthworks, and so Whittlesley was in charge of sort of the south-central part of the state, so from Portsmouth up through uh, probably, like, Circleville. Um, that's what he was responsible for. A lot of earthworks there. He did a lot of earthwork surveys. <laughs> I was and, about to say, he looks like a character out of Jumanji. Yeah, and uh, he was friends with uh, Davis. Okay. Um, when... Whittlesley went to survey the Newark earthworks. Um, 
Davis, fresh out of school up in that area, helped Whittlesley do the survey of the Newark earthworks in like 1838, 1837, wow. 1838. And so um, <clears throat> they were friends from that t- far back. And so uh, they asked if uh, Whittlesley, you know, would lend them the unpublished material because the Ohio Geological Survey had published two annual reports, 37 and 38, and then the project ended. Right. Well, Whittlesley in the volume said they had collected about 60 different earthwork surveys. They'd only published one. And so the other (laughs) bunch of them, uh, Whittlesley (laughs) was sitting on And Whittlesley had designs of writing his own book about the earthworks, and there was an author in Columbus that he was going to work with to do that, and he had sent this guy, like, copies of all these surveys, and they got lost in the mail. So you wonder if those will ever turn up anywhere someday. Wouldn't that be amazing? But... um, the the author that he was working with uh, got very ill, and the project got sidelined. And so Whittlesley agreed to lend him this work uh, uh, that he had done for uh, Davis um, and Squire. And so uh, that wound up be all of it being used <laughs> and not all of it being credited to Whittlesley either, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting. Um, Hildreth was in uh, in Marietta, Ohio, and so he worked in Marietta, and he also contributed a survey of the Plains Mounds in Athens. Oh, yeah. Uh, Dr. John Locke did the very first survey of Fort Hill, <coughs> and uh, he did a survey of... Fort Ancient, which I can talk about later, which um, Squire basically used both of those and didn't didn't uh, give Locke uh, any attribution for the Fort Hill one, but did for Fort Ancient. And the Fort Ancient one may not be entirely based on Locke's survey, hmm. which I can get to. Then we have uh, Constantine Raffinesque down there in the lower left corner. He uh, had died... Uh, in like 1839 or 1840, I think it was. What he is died? That? Yeah, he had Oh, died. 1863. <coughs> uh, <laughs> on his? That's, that must be a typo. It's, it's early. He, he died earlier than yeah, that? Yeah, he died in like 1840. Oh, okay. And um, when, when he died, um, a lot of his papers, at least his anthropological and archaeological papers, were obtained by a friend of his by the name of Brantz Mayer, who was uh, kind of the founder of the Maryland Historical Society in Baltimore. Alrighty. And because Squire had, uh, you know, some ties with Baltimore because he had spoken there, uh, right. you know, in his in his labor days. Yeah. Um, he was kind of friends with Brantz Mayer, and so he asked if he could borrow Raffinesque's papers, and so. Uh, Mayor agreed, and almost everything that Raffinesque did uh, in terms of surveys of earthworks, mostly from Kentucky, wound up in ancient monuments. Some of it credited, some of it not credited. Um, Then you have uh, General William Lytle there, who was a very early surveyor in Ohio. Uh, he, he surveyed in the town, uh, is named after him, of Williamsburg, 
mm. in Claremont County. Mm. Yeah. That's uh, William Lytle. It was originally called Lytle's Town. Then it became Williamsburg, right? And uh, so there was an earthwork about five miles north of there called the East Fork Works, which he had done a survey of. And he also did a survey of the Milford Works. Those appear in ancient monuments um, through a really convoluted story. I don't know if you guys want to get into that. But uh, basically, Squire got his surveys from a publication in France uh, that published his surveys. And uh, and Squire basically gave that French publication right to the lithographers. They copied it straight over, uh, essentially. Jeez, <clears throat> um. Squire, I'll tell you what, he is a real flim-flam man, isn't he? Oh, yeah. Well, Captain like Francis Cleveland, the next Barnum guy in the here. list, he was from— <laughs> Am I wrong? What's that? Basically. I said P.T. Barnum like over P. here. Oh, yeah. Barnum. You know? But, it is, so, it's a circus of just wildness. You got uh, Francis Cleveland, who was from uh, Portsmouth. Yeah. He was the uh, civil engineer on the Ohio to Erie Canal, which ran from Portsmouth all the way okay. to Cleveland. And— um, he was in charge of the section from Chillicothe to Portsmouth, and uh, he did the first survey of the earthworks in Portsmouth, mm. uh, including the Horseshoe Mound, which still exists today. And he published a map in, like, 1830, which I found among Squire's papers, as well as the drafts of those maps— done by Francis Cleveland nice. and maybe an assistant by the name of Increase Lapham. Increase Lapham was supposed to have been a member of the Ohio Geological Survey. He, he worked for Francis Cleveland uh, as an assistant uh, on the canal. Um, they put the canal within like 100 or 200 yards of the Tremper Mound earthworks. When they dug the canal there, they found bushels and bushels of mica and all kinds of artifacts and stuff. They dug through that. And um, so he knew about all the earthworks around there. But um, by the 1840s, he owned the newspaper in uh, Portsmouth. So he was a newspaper guy. Squire went down there and visited with him and another guy by the name of Dr. Uh, Giles Hempstead. Hempstead was also a big mound aficionado, had created a huge map of the Portsmouth earthworks. Uh, Squire collected all that information, then drew his own map of the Portsmouth Earthworks and never credited any either either Hempstead or Cleveland uh, or or Lapham. Uh, Lapham may have actually drafted the map of the P Portsmouth Earthworks for Cleveland, based on Cleveland's survey notes. Um, and then the last guy on, the, on that list, Caleb Atwater. He published a short volume of the Ohio Earthworks in 1820, so more than a quarter century before Squire and Davis, um, you know, even started working on the earthworks. He had already published this volume that had about 10 earthworks in it. Uh, Squire used nine of the ten. <laughs> uh, same sites. At least um, he left one cookie. <laughs> but. Right. but what was interesting was that in the entire uh, book, Caleb Atwater's name is not mentioned at all. Um, and I think that may be due to the fact that Caleb Atwater was a Jacksonian Democrat <laughs> mm. and uh, was actually named as an Indian commissioner by uh, President Andrew Jackson, went up to Wisconsin and negotiated <laughs> with some of the tribes there uh, in, wow. in the 
in the like around 1830-ish uh, time frame. Too wild. So uh, yeah, Jackson so, was notorious for hating indigenous and. Yeah, yeah. He was <laughs> yeah. notorious. Yeah. So Atwater was based in Circleville, and his uh, map of the Circleville earthworks was considered to be the most, uh, you know, authentic one or elaborate one, and uh, was actually directly copied by Squire's, uh, you know, woodcutting team. But they don't credit him. You can like overlay, you know, Atwater's over the ancient monuments version or vice versa and they are identical. Yeah. Um, but he doesn't credit him. He talks around him. It's really weird. Uh, so that's kind of a, kind of a strange thing, but, uh, and anyway, there, I have in the introductory chapter at the end of the introductory chapter, I have little mini biographies of not just these eight guys, but about 25 other guys who contributed stuff to ancient monuments just to talk about all the different contributors, who they were, wow. right? All of this material that Squire had gotten from all these other people. So these are just like the top seven or eight, you know. Caleb Atwater I've heard of. Yeah. I think I've come across Google Books I think is available of that little yep. – that mm-hmm. the 10 earthworks. Right. I think I've so, come across that. Just to give you a sense of what lithographs look like. So – on the left wow. is the engraved stone. Yep. On the right is the print in yep. mirror reverse. Yep. Uh, this is a one that I found of um, of um, I think that's Munich, Germany. So for our listeners, let's try to describe that. Oh, what? That, the that, stone. That, yeah, I know it's. Okay. I know it might be difficult. It's kind of a, a bird's eye view or an overhead thing. view of the no, map of the city. Oh. And uh, so you have a kind of a map of the cityscape of uh, in Germany there, and uh, it's it's kind of a, kind of a yellowish whitish stone surface, and the ink is inset into the grooves of the, and that's how they create the lithograph. Litho meaning totally stone. That's that comes from the exactly Greek the lithos, and uh, graphing meaning to write. So you're writing on stone lithography. And so these are, the, I mentioned the lithographers, Napoleon Cerrone. Now, uh, Cerrone was a character. Um, Looks like As ben you can Kingsley. tell from his dress, <laughs> he he's wearing this fez with this sort of yeah. military costume. He was about four foot nine or ten. Stop. And, <laughs> and he and his wife would walk around New York City dressed in these elaborate costumes. And uh, there was a reporter that stopped them one time and asked them, you know, why he dressed the way he did. And he goes, uh, everyone knows who I am. It's free advertising. <laughs> wow. So everybody knew who he was. Now, um, as I mentioned, uh, he he and uh, his partner there, Henry Major, they they got their start at Courier Knives. Um, Napoleon Cerrone went on to become very very consequential in terms of the law in this country. Really, there was a case that he brought. Um, in in he gave up doing lithography. Lithography. He saw the handwriting on the wall. That was not going to be a profitable business very much longer after photography began. Mm-hmm. And so in the 1850s, he went over to Europe to <clears throat> learn how to do photography. And he came back after learning photography and set up a photographic studio. 
And he began to become very famous for photographing all the most famous people in the United States. So all the politicians, all of the uh, famous actors and actresses. P.T. Barnum was a friend of his. Mentioned it. Uh, (laughs) Many of P.T. Barnum's promotional photos were done by uh, Napoleon Cerrone. Really? Wow. And P.T. Yeah. Now. I mean, they they look like they get along. One of the. <laughs> One of the f- subjects that became very famous because of Napoleon Cerrone was the author Oscar Wilde. Sure. Mm. The playwright. The playwright. And the image of Oscar Wilde as this sort of bohemian person was due to Napoleon Cerrone's <clears throat> dressing of the set to frame those photos. And he created sort of the image of Oscar mm. Wilde. And those photos became really famous, and Oscar Wilde became one of the most famous people at that period yeah. of time. And uh, there was a lithographic company in New York who took one of Cerrone's photographs of Oscar Wilde, and they created a lithographic print from that. And they ran off a couple hundred thousand copies, sold a couple hundred thousand copies, <clears throat> and Cerrone sued them for copyright infringement. Hmm. And... The case went all the way to the Supreme Court. So there's a case uh, involving Cerrone uh, at the Supreme Court level. And that's where the Supreme Court ruled that photography is covered under copyright. Mm. Because the photographer chooses how to frame the subject chooses how the set is dressed, chooses the way that the lighting conditions are. The photographer is a part of the artistic process. 100%. The uh, lithography company said, no, 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 it's just a mechanical operation. You just click the shutter, you have your photo. And the Supreme Court said, no, no, no. And so because of Napoleon Cerrone, we have wow. copyright protection on photography in the United States. There you go, Shut folks. Up. <laughs> that on. might be one of the strangest things to talk about. I didn't even episode. know that. That's too bizarre. <laughs> so, I might have so to give cool. him some kudos, yeah. some credit, because we salute you, Cerrone. I take it back, Napoleon. Although you and Bonaparte are both rocking the short man syndrome. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Sorry, so, I had to put it out there. Quit, quit the character. But nevertheless. Uh, Cerrone and Major did the lithographs for ancient bodies. Put the work right. in. Now the woodcutters, uh, these two guys. I'm not sure I could tell them apart if I saw them on the street. Oh wow! Yeah, um, have, they uh, look like Amish. Uh, you have Orr and Richardson there. Uh, Orr is on the on the left. Richardson's on the right. Um, what I have on the on the next slide is actually I tracked down. Nathaniel Orr's actual uh, business card engraving or business illustration engraving. So you can wow, see he had the mirror cool. image of it on the left Super and the print on the right. So Nathaniel Orr there, that was his wood engraving uh, firm logo. Wow. So uh, they were responsible for the woodcut illustrations in the book. Um, so I talked about this already. Oh, one of the things I tracked down... Uh, you see those brown little booklets there, notebooks there. Yeah. I actually tracked down Squire's original field notes from where he did the surveys. I was surprised that these existed, wow. <laughs> to be honest. Um, and they were not in the Squire collection at uh, the Library of Congress. 
you would think that they would have been amongst those papers, but they weren't. They are in the collection of the Western Reserve Historical Society in Cleveland. And, uh, and so I was able to access those as well as all of Charles Whittlesley's papers because Whittlesley was from Cleveland. And so I was able to get a lot of Whittlesley's original survey drawings from the Ohio Geological Survey. And those are in the book, mm-hmm. or many of them are in the book, I should say. Uh, so in any event, uh, I, I was able to track down the original drawings that, of Serpent Mound that, that uh, Squire made when he visited Serpent Mound, which are the earliest drawings that we now have, you know. So uh, th- in any event, uh, those were kind of fun to see, too. So lots of sources, lots of other methods, uh, you know, that I was able to track down stuff. It was a huge detective project. You know, I, I ended up getting material from about 14 or 15 different institutions around the United States. All of them incredibly helpful, um, with the exception of one, which I mentioned. Um, And, uh, you know, so I credit all of them and acknowledge all of them in the beginning of the book. Um, To give you an example of the differences that you can see in the book between the published material and the originals, this is plate number one. This is a lithograph in the book. Um, and this is a, called a view of the ancient works at Marietta, uh, Ohio. And so the, for the listeners, you, the picture is uh, you're standing on top of a ridge overlooking a valley of where there's a whole bunch of earthworks laid out on this plain. And you can see in the foreground, there's these two trees that kind of crisscross each other. And there's like a couple of Indians standing there. And then there's like a cabin and some other stuff. And so this in ancient monuments is acknowledged as being based on a painting by an artist by the name of Charles Sullivan. And the painting was commissioned by a person by the name of Anselm Nye. And uh, I had seen a version of Charles Sullivan's painting once. Um, There is a version of that painting at the Campus Martius Museum in Marietta, Ohio. And it was like on an easel in the museum, and you could literally walk right up to it. And I took high-resolution pictures of it at the time, uh, not this is like years ago, not knowing that I would come back to this, right? Isn't that crazy? And so I had high resolution pictures of this painting, and so I was familiar with the painting. Oh, bad. Okay, yeah. And so I was like, I could use that in the book, you know, right? Yeah. Well, um, the uh, Ohio History Connection owns that museum, and so they wanted to charge me one hundred and fifty dollars at a minimum to run my own photograph of the painting in my book. So I did not include that photograph. But it wasn't essential anyways. I'm going to show you that picture here in a second. Okay. Um, But when uh, there's another uh, lithograph in the book, which is also based on a Charles Sullivan painting. So there's one mound, which is in between the two trees and the distance there. It's called the Conus Mounds, the big, tall, conical mound in the picture. Hard to see in this yeah, view. Yeah, I think I see. Okay, um, I got you. That it's um, shaded on half of it. He, he created kind of a, a singular full-page 
ground level view of that mound. And that became a lithograph in the book. And uh, same commissioned by Anselm Nye. Well, I'd never seen that painting anywhere. I'd never seen a reference to that painting anywhere. And so I went on a hunt for that painting. And one of the, I couldn't find hardly any references to Charles Sullivan paintings out there. Uh, very few institutions hold Charles Sullivan paintings. Um, but one of the places that had a mention that they had a Charles Sullivan painting was Marietta College. So I reached out to Marietta College and I asked them um, if they had this Conus Mound painting, and they said, no, they don't have that painting. Um, and I said, well, do you have any Charles Sullivan paintings of any of the mounds in Marietta? And they said, yes, we do. We have one. Uh, it's up in our one of our reading rooms on the wall. And I said, well, you know, it's like a three-hour drive for me to get there. Can you, you know, take a cell phone picture and send it to me, which they did, courteous enough to do that. And um, it turned out to be this painting. I said, wait, I thought that painting was on display at Campus Marshall's Museum. And they said, well, that's a copy. We have the original. What? And, so you told OHC, thanks, but no thanks? Well, yeah, I didn't need them. I didn't need their painting because I went to Marietta College and they let me photograph the painting right. and allowed me to use it for free. Right. So, you know, uh, I have the original in the book as opposed to the copy <coughs> that OHC made. And they said, actually, there, there were... Wow. Anselm Nye, when he commissioned his painting, um, it became very popular within his family, and so they made two other copies. And so there's actually a third copy out there, Jesus. which I now understand has also been acquired by the Ohio History Connection and is at the Campus Martians Museum. So if you want to see the two copies, they're at the Campus Martians Museum. There you go. But if you want to see the original, it's hanging in the library at uh, Marietta College. Cat's out of the bag. Right. That's so cool. Now, uh, <laughs> this is a bit of one of those sort of eye tests that what are the differences between these two pictures? So mm -hmm. here's our original here, and here is the original painting. Oh, boy. Wow. So there's no conical mound in the center of the two trees. No, there is. But it's kind of like way up there. in the shade, right? It doesn't. Yeah. I mean, it's still it's there. It's in a different the tree, spot. The though, trees right? are a little bit different. The trees, the trees are a, lot are different. a little bit. Now they're, they're a little scrawnier. <laughs> they're crisscrossing. That's about all there is. Yeah. The same. The the uh, there's no Native American in the foreground. No. Nope. No people in the foreground. Yeah. Those were added. Like, mm, that's so <laughs> weird. That Why a, would they do that? Is that a cabin down there? <laughs> that is a cabin. Uh, that's strange. Why would they add them? Yeah. So so this is kind of an interest. There's differences. Let's go back one. Wait more. a minute. Wait a minute. Okay. I'm like. You already got me messed up. Let's go back. <laughs> Let's yeah. go back one. God damn it. Let's go back. Let's go. So. I need a refresh. Oh, wow. Wow. And go back again. Now. They've really taken some liberties with backing <laughs> the perspective up. And yeah. going, hey, can some we, you know, liberties. Bob Ross this and put a happy little family oh, over here? And happy little Native American family <laughs> yeah. here. And All right. So oh, there's shit. some differences. There's clearly yeah. some differences. You could say that. Well, that's part of the reason why I did this is. book was so that you could see the differences between the original source material and what ended up in this final printed edition.
Now, I know we'll probably cover it, Let's, but are there a lot more examples of can, just, like, stark differences like this? Sure. Or is this, like, more extreme? If, yeah, obviously this is more extreme because of the yeah, color, Yeah, yeah. for one. <clears throat> what about the question of artistic prowess at the time of yeah, whoever's going out and doing the original the and then, uh, I, the I mean, point? obviously, art's been around for a long time and painters yeah. and, and they people do a good copying, job. I'm just saying, are people they... People been copying other again, people's art. Is it bad to, copies? Think, yeah, is it... Squire took a copy of this painting to New York City, and they put it down, and then the, the artist has to yeah. then recreate that in mirror image. <laughs> I'm just— And you're going from color to black and white. And in fact, actually, I should go back to this uh, original painting here for a second. Um, so this original lithograph, I don't know if you noticed that there's a couple of different shades of color there. Yeah. So— there are two of these in ancient monuments in the original edition that were produced with a process called chroma lithography. Mm. Uh, chroma lithography had been invented in Germany about two years prior to this. And these illustrations in ancient monuments are the first known published illustrations of chroma lithographs in the United States. Wow. So what that means is they ran the printing process twice using two different colors. Essentially, so you have kind of a two-tone yep. version. I here. see what you're saying. Yep. I see what you're saying. Well, that's and, how you're getting that dynamic and, range, if you will, right. in, in film terms of like, see the the sky, uh, yep, and how it gradients up. Mm-hmm. And that's I think that was done for just the two Charles Sullivan paintings. They used the chroma lithograph process to capture that additional detail. All the rest of the lithographs are done through the normal lithographic print process. That's interesting. So uh, I know that's really technical jargon. I love it. Stuff, no, I know what you're talking no, about. No, but it's but. super interesting because, right, if you use just one color, you're going to get a flat effect. Right. Yep. So uh, cool. if I go back uh, to that. So here's a – now here I'll show you – the copy uh, at the Campus Martians Museum, so you can see the difference. Oh wow, that looks—it looks a little ill. <laughs> it's a little more yellowed. I it's a little. Say. It looks like it has jaundice. <laughs> right now, this isn't the only <clears throat> versions of these paintings that have have happened. I, mean, I couldn't. Do I'm going to show you one more here, which is uh, again, <laughs> this is the one that was in ancient <laughs> monuments. This is the lithograph, and then there's this painting. What the hell? More okay. Native Americans added. The trees are on separate hills now. Like, okay, there's well, a teepee in the corner. The perspective of the earthwork, the complex, is much closer. It's a little different, isn't it? It's much closer, right. and it's not through the tree. It's like perfectly on the right. Okay, so this is a this painting has a fascinating story unto so itself. Confused, yeah, I don't know if you can tell across the very top of the painting, there are these little metal. Pieces? Do you see that? Across. Can you see? Oh, it kind of sags at one oh, end. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. This is a canvas that is about twenty feet wide by twelve feet. Mm, high. Uh, mm. That's how big this is. Yeah. And this holy is, cow. This was one panel in uh, a collection of panels of the same size. 20 feet wide by 12 feet high, a painted on canvas for a public presentation that was given by uh, a medical doctor uh, by the name of Montrovel W. Dixon in 1850. Yeah. Question. Yeah. <laughs> Just knowing that that's what's happening. 
the production of these. Yeah. Again, I just have to wonder, is somebody just like, I'm going to get close to how it accurately looks? You know, because we're going from right. how how high of a fidelity rate are we looking for on a reproduction of painting so, this out to then give the... So this this was part of a short-lived sort of trend in the United States in the late 1840s and into the 1850s of there's no... There's no television. There's no sure, radio. Totally there's none get of stuff. it. Absolutely. And so people would buy tickets to go to public presentations. This is a movie. And this guy would give a lecture about the earthworks as these scrolled across the the stage it's behind the him. PowerPoint slides. So like we're PowerPoint just time slides. traveling yes. here. Yeah, that's right. We're just time traveling. I love right. this. And so this <laughs> we're guy. We're doing it now with Jeff. This guy, Montrovel <laughs> Dixon, was a medical doctor, left Philadelphia mm. in the uh, 1830s on an eight-year trip down the Ohio and Mississippi River. Eight freaking years. Dude. What do you and think your your wife might say to, hey, honey, I'll be back uh, in eight years? Yeah, go. Yeah, I'm and gonna along go the way, it's your turn to watch the dog, He would honey. stop in different places and at mound sites, and he would, uh, you know, sketch them out, many times excavate at them, and when, uh, uh, at those sites. And then when he returned, he kind of became a bit of a sensation. And I would say so. At the same time that Squire had gone to the East Coast. And okay. people were talking about them in the same circles. And, in fact, the American Ethnological Society said, you got to meet this Montreal Dixon guy. He's really got a lot of stuff. He's doing what you guys are doing, but he's gone, you know, all the way down the Ohio and into the Mississippi. And uh, so the, they arranged for Dixon to go uh, to Chilcothy and— he met with Davis. Okay. Did not meet with Squire. Squire at the time had um, gotten into a bit of a political dispute amongst his Whig buddies in Chillicothe, which almost resulted in some kind of fist fight. Um, Jesus. He was allegedly. The story goes. Uh, there were there were black codes in uh, in Ohio at the time. Black people could not do certain things. One of them was they uh, there were very very there were a lot of restrictions about what they could do in engaging in the justice system. They couldn't serve on juries. They couldn't testify in cases. So if you know there was a lot of stuff like that. Sure. And Squire was opposed to the black codes and got into a fight with another Whig guy uh, who was for the codes. And so Squire had to kind of leave town. And he arranged to become the clerk of the Ohio House of Representatives for their session at the beginning of 1847. Nice. So he left and came to Columbus, and he was out of town when Dixon showed up to meet with Davis. Hmm. Now, Dixon met with Davis, and then he went to Circleville and met with Caleb Atwater. And, uh, in fact, uh, I have in my book uh, Dixon's original drawing of the Circleville Earthworks, which is probably the most detailed one that's ever been done. Probably from the material that he got from Caleb Atwater when he met with him uh, when he came to town. Well, I believe that Dixon got this information off of one of the copied paintings that that Squire and Davis had in their possession that they were about ready to publish the book about. And so this wound up being the first panel in Dixon's gigantic presentation. Now, you got to think about this. 
they had these on gigantic rollers wound up, and then they would scroll it across the place. stage yeah. behind him as he talked about it. The and then he displayed artifacts from these sites, uh, you know, and they gave these presentations in Philadelphia and New York City. And this eventually wound up at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, who by the turn of the century didn't want it anymore, and they were going to throw it away. And uh, that was about the time that the St. Louis World's Fair was going to be organized. Oh, boy. And so they shipped it out there to St. Louis World's Fair. And at the end of the fair, it wound up in the possession of the uh, St. Louis Art Museum. And about 15 years ago, they started to restore this entire gigantic panels, like something like 240,000 square feet of canvas. That's crazy. You can go to the St. Louis Museum of Arts now, and every month they have one panel on display, and you can go there and see that panel. But uh, they were kind enough to allow me to reproduce the panels that were related to Ohio Earthworks for the book. And this is for pan, you know, for so plate this number is one. a photograph. This is a photograph of that the they took big giant of, panel of the panel. This is actually of the canvas restored. Wow, so, that's insane that's to beautiful. think how big that is. That I it's know. Like, Literally life-size. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. So he has one of, like, the Portsmouth Earthworks. He has one of the Circleville Earthworks. I'm just imagining seeing this as a show. Well, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, exactly. a, you know, a you know what lit room and what? Uh, Point Pleasant, West Virginia. You ever been down that really nice walkway there on the river? Mm-hmm. In Point Pleasant, they have a whole... Quarter mile stretch, half mile oh, stretch. Oh, yeah, yeah. We just went there. Mural, yeah. beautiful, huge mural. Portsmouth, Portsmouth has that. They have a, they have one of the it's panels right the, of the Portsmouth right on the Earthworks water. is a, of the Earthworks. Yep, it's right yeah, on the, it's right it's on so the right. River there. But that's what this reminds me of. Yeah, yeah now you say it's that. the same kind of style. Yeah, the uh, the Indians here uh, mm. have dress from of like the Caddo Indians in Texas. It makes no sense. Yeah, what, uh, There's a lot of stuff. That? But <laughs> I do have one other story that I, I want to tell about this lithograph here. And actually, the painting itself. If we w- went back to the, the uh, original painting, the original is this that one. one. So I don't know if you can see this in the detail because we're so seen so far away from it. But kind of around the middle of the earthworks, there's a line of people. Yeah, that are walking. Okay, um, Anselm Nye, um, who commissioned the painting, who was the one of the f- first trustees and organizers of Marietta College, who this painting was donated to. His father was one of the first settlers in Marietta. And so Anselm Nye got his father to work with Charles Sullivan to create this painting as authentically as possible to its original view. And included in that authenticity was the procession of people. And that referred to a very specific historical incident that took place uh, in which uh, some of the local Indians had stolen some of the horses from from the settlers there. Uh, one of the buildings that you can see kind of on the left center side of the of the painting is actually the Campus Martius building, mm. uh, which was the first land office in Ohio uh, from the Ohio Company. Now, wasn't Marietta the first founded city yes. in Ohio? Correct. So it's the oldest city we have in Ohio, guys. Right. And so <clears throat> there was the... The some of the local tribes stole some of the horses, and they sent out a contingent of soldiers from 
uh, Fort Harmer, which is right across on the other side of the mouth of the river there. That's that's the Ohio River running linear and uh, the Muskegon running into us. That's the mouth of the Muskegon River there. And so um, the Marietta earthworks are on one side of the mouth of the river, north side. On the south side, Fort Harmer was over there. And so they sent out some soldiers from Fort Harmer to go get the horses back. And that is a procession of soldiers returning to the fort. Um, this is based on a description from uh, Anselm Nye's younger brother, who was five years old when this incident took place and was an eyewitness to it, that the soldiers returned with the head of one of the Indians on a pike. And that's in the painting. Uh, so that's kind of an unusual story. And so that's Jeez. part of why this painting was, you know, kind of famous for its time was that historical depiction of an actual event that took place. Wow. So. Wow. Wow. You're blowing my mind. (laughs) That's, that, that, holy, that gives that picture a lot more depth. Right. Right. (laughs) Right. So that's just plate number one, right? (laughs) How many did you have? Well, there are 48 plates in the book and about 200 illustrations. Uh, <laughs> Jesus. Jeff, so, you went so deep, man. This so is this amazing. is plate number two. <laughs> okay. Oh what you gosh. see here on the left here is uh, kind of an overview of the earthworks around the city of Chillicothe, Ohio, as it looked in 1847-ish. Okay. Um, let me show you uh, a, a few examples of um, of the uh, draft illustrations. So this is a draft illustration on the right that Squire made. So the lithographer is working off of the draft, right? And you can see there are some differences, quite a bit of differences between those two. I won't go into all those details because they're so minute on this particular uh, panel. But what's interesting about this is how many versions of this draft Squire went through to to come to the final version, right? So uh, here we'll show another one here. So this is another version of that. That was so you can look at the sequence. I'm I'm kind of going in reverse sequence. What I think is. The last version, this is probably the one prior sure. to that. Then there's another one prior to that. You know, you can see some of the differences change. As they're looking at earthworks, the earthworks are changing as they refine their surveys. And by the way, this map is not to scale whatsoever. People have said that this is a really accurate map. Not even close. Yeah. Uh, it, the uh, the earthworks it. up at the top versus the earthworks <clears throat> at the bottom are like if you tried to overlay this map in Google, uh, like Google Earth Maps or something like that, you it would be way off. Those ones at the top are like five to eight miles off the top of the map, and the ones at the bottom are five to eight miles off the bottom of the map. I mean, it's just not even close. The square was not good. In fact, um, this is one of the several maps in the book that when you look at the key up in the up in the upper uh, you know right of the map. It doesn't say that it was surveyed by. All the rest of the maps say surveyed by X, you know, whether it's Squire and Davis or whoever. They say surveyed by. But this map does not say that. It said it was constructed by. 
there's a couple of maps that say constructed by. Devil's in the details. And uh, and so Squire sort of invented this map. Right. It doesn't it didn't exist. They didn't survey this out. Frankenstein uh, map. Yeah, and so it's not really that accurate. But it does contain records of all these different earthworks, which don't really exist. Uh, a lot of them are destroyed, right? Now, I, I found quite a number of those. Now, I mentioned uh, Squire's Aboriginal Monuments in the Mississippi Valley. Yeah. This is his version from Aboriginal Monuments with the crease down the middle because the map was originally folded um, in the book. That was also done by Saronian Major. So Saronian Major also did the lithographs that appeared in Aboriginal Monuments. And guess what? They're not the same. They're actually different. I was just about to say, yeah. he's the same person doing them. He did, you know, same two people doing quality. it based on the same drawings, different outcomes. And so you can see these in the book. You can look at them side by side, or whatever, and you can you can look at those differences. Do you think they were all just kind of look, looking at each other's, you know? Surveys and going, well, I'm going to look like maybe he was looking at someone else's as like maybe Squire wasn't the only one doing it. Maybe they are all. Well, that's definitely the case because um, at the American Antiquarian Society, I found uh, a couple of versions done by Davis of this same map, Mm. and they're a little bit different, Uh, but uh, but essentially the same. Too many cooks, right? We got too many cooks. Just get one person surveying. So those Davis versions are also in uh, in my book. I don't think I included man, oh man, dude. The thing is, is a lot of these guys, like you showed earlier, they're all like colonels and former military and militia people. Right, right. They're all wild dudes. Well, probably (laughs) running around, (laughs) opening up mounds. A lot of Alpha (laughs) Davy Crockett machismo going on. Me, hundred percent. So, so you mentioned the opening mounds issue. I, I talk about this in the book. Um, what Squire and Davis did in this whole thing of going around and excavating the mounds and retrieving artifacts and stuff, um, people today would say that they were looters. Yeah. Well, people would have said that also in 1848 or 45 when Squire and Davis were doing it. There were laws on the books in Ohio, which I include in the book. I put the actual law that was on the books at the time that Squire and Davis violated in terms of digging up people's graves. That was illegal at the time that they did this work. So what got them? It was just so sensational that they enforced. couldn't arrest them? Or it wasn't enforced. It wasn't enforced. People didn't. People no one didn't, cared. Nobody cared. And, and, but here's the thing. People don't so, live here anymore. So here's, here's the fun part of that law. Um. Not only was it a violation of of the law to uh, to dig up these mounds, mm-hmm. you could be fined a substantial amount. I think it was like up to ten thousand um, dollars, and you could be put in prison for it. And uh, you know the law was specific; you could be put in prison and served only bread and water for thirty days <laughs> for for violating this. On top of that. Anyone with any knowledge of you doing it and that didn't report it or had contributed in any way to help you do it could also be found guilty of the same. Accessory. Right? Yeah. So who does that implicate? 
the Smithsonian, oh boy. American Antiquarian Society, American oh. Ethnological Society, Harvard, like like a whole host of other of institutions. Course. Like I had no idea that this. knew Squire and Davis were doing this work that had implicate that had assisted them financially in doing this work that received the material of you know them doing this work. They would all been guilty of this crime, and they you know, were all digging up mounds later too. Exactly, this, these laws. laws existed into the I didn't in, know into that. the late 1800s. I did not know that. And so, you know, it was the same thing when you know Frederick Putnam at Harvard and, and Serpent and, Mound and Serpent Mound. That, wow, that, that exact same thing would have applied at the same time. Whoa, they were so Harvard just, was sending. Didn't out. Didn't matter if if it was on public property or private property. The law said. Okay, let's pause this again now. So we got yeah. this. Smithsonian who already stumbles in the starting blocks and then hits the first hurdle and they right. fall again. And so they violate Ohio law in supporting right. Squire Davis's mound looting expedition. Right, but even beyond that, and that's like, what it is too. Yeah. Let's not get it sideways. Of like saying, hey, you don't have to give all the credit to all the lithographers that were doing the wood carvings, but you got to give this guy some credit. And you know, but right. even the, it's just it just seems so very not what. Is been present. It's just such a hard thing to That's wrap right. your head around what's been presented as this is how it's come about, yeah. and it's like I don't see that here. I know this is really hard to see on the screen, but uh, all the little dots in red are the mounds uh, from the prior map. Sure, uh, spread out Showing over a much bigger area. Yeah. yeah, and I I don't know if I put the uh, whoops. Let me go forward here. Try to overlay them. Yeah, there's your overlay. <laughs> oh, that's comical! What? So they drew the rivers so, and everything. So you see the, those red, the red dots that go kind of south yep. towards the right corner. Mm-hmm. Those are on Squire's map, but they're way, way off the map. <laughs> so they were trying to condense it all into yeah, it. Condense it down. That's too funny. I just did that to to talk about a different story. Um, so on that original map that full map of the Circleville Earthworks. In the city of Circleville itself, there are a couple of earthworks that Squire has drawn on his map, and Squire and Davis have on both their maps. Um, and um, a friend of mine, Gary Argabright from... Gary, uh, Ro- shout out Gary. Ross County Historical Society and, uh, you know, the Mound City chapter of the Archaeological Association of Ohio, Ohio, Ohio Archaeological Society, Um he was working on a project to track down where all the mounds were in the city of Chillicothe, which are now all gone. And he had seen one of my public presentations of this map, and he said, hey, uh, do you have any information that might be able to track down where the specific mound grouping is in, in there? So I had these maps. I overlaid it, and I did this map here. And you can't kind of in the center of the map, there are four red circles yeah. there. That was the mound group that Gary was concerned about and trying to look for. And then I found uh, a map, which we can talk about, of what archaeologists had called the East Fork Works. That's that square and the big circles. Mm-hmm. It looks a lot like Sipe. And, and then there's Oakland another mound grouping across the river up in the hills up there. That's another group up there. And so I, you know, was working on this uh, for Gary, and I noticed something that kind of stuck out at me. I didn't include this in the book, but I figured I'd bring it to tell you guys about it. Uh, So let's zoom in on that a little bit. So here's our area where you've got the four circles to the left, and you've got the what they called the east uh, works, uh, you know, kind of in the lower uh, right center. 
And then I, this is what caught my attention was you see that one field just to the right of the four circles. Mm-hmm. Okay. Zoom There's in something on. there. Yeah, let's zoom in on that. There's totally something there. I don't know if you can see that on the screen, but um, there's a giant circle there. And wow. that is one of the earthworks that Squire put on his map. Wow. Um, and I was, uh, I, I was astonished to see this um, from the Google satellite photography here uh, in Google Earth Pro, um, that that circle has some semblance of existence left remaining in the one last undeveloped property in the city right. of Chillicothe. That's literally it. It's there. <laughs> and so uh, I reported on this uh, at my presentation to the Ross County Historical Society, and I, you know, encouraged the locals to contact the city leaders to, you know, see about maybe preserving that last yeah. remaining earthwork circle that still has some trace of existence there. So uh, I, I can uh, kind of, I think I put a red circle there. There it is. Yes, there it is. I did make it out. Yeah. Okay. I did I make like, it out without it. So yeah. uh, thanks for pulling that up then. Yeah. And I just want to mention, maybe go back a little bit when you were talking about Circleville. And guys, literally there was a giant circle earthwork yeah. before the city of Circleville. I don't know if you can yep. talk a little bit about sure. that. Yeah. Um, in the book, I actually, the very earliest um, mound illustration uh, that people know about in Ohio is of the Circleville Earthworks, which I include in my book, which is from, ready for the date? 1773. Whoa. <laughs> now, Ohio became a state in 1803, and uh, the Treaty of Greenville, which basically kicked the Indians out of southern Ohio, uh, north of the Treaty of Greenville line. Fort Recovery, that's where we're from. Fort Recovery. That happened in 1795, right? So this is, you know, before the Revolutionary War— there were there was an English trader that had gone through the area and had drawn that out, and that got sent back with a with a, Brit, a British missionary essentially, and was published in a newspaper in Boston uh, in 1773. That's amazing of the Circleville Earthworks, and uh, it wasn't until the 1800s that uh, that people started settling within the walls of yeah. the circle of the earthwork. <laughs> yeah. And that's how big it was. That's why they named it Circleville yeah. was for the circle circular earthwork. I didn't this know this incredible. either. Okay. Now for a long time, it was in the 1830s that after, you know, decades after the village had been there, uh, they had essentially put the city hall right in the center of the circle. And then, radiating out from the center of it out in all directions were the streets of the town. Yeah. Well, evidently, right. uh, people got tired of that. Yeah. Uh, and they wanted to have a normal gridded city. Yeah. And so they, they formed a corporation and very slowly, quarter by quarter, went through the entire village and demolished everything and gridded out the city into a square. And that's why the earthwork is now obliterated it's gone. because they actually got a corporation to obliterate it. Because somebody on needed purpose. to have, you know, 90 degree angles to get to Starbucks inside their right. Native American yeah, yeah. earth, you know. Yep. And so uh, maybe this even has though the something name to do is still with there. Why you know? we're spiritually lost in so many ways in our culture. <laughs> like just let's obliterate. And imagine you got a town inside of an earthwork. 
That's amazing that they actually built their town well, and spindled it out, I guess you could say. If you, go, if you go to England, have you ever been to England? Yeah. Did you go to Avebury? So we were in a couple towns outside of Stonehenge. I don't think it was okay. Avebury. So Avebury, the village of Avebury, is within yes. the circle. Yes. And that circle at Avebury is roughly comparable to the size of the circle at Circleville. Yeah, we definitely did. Um, but yes, that is. And so, you know, that little village never really developed and expanded. So there's just a little, you know, there. few buildings on the in the middle of it. But um hmm. You know, they don't go wild with their development out there. No. So, so the Avebury earthwork is still intact. Um, you know. Avebury is super famous. I actually talk about Boy Avebury strange. in my book a little bit a lot um, of... because it has to do with uh, <coughs> Portsmouth earthworks map that Squire made. But uh, it's just another story. So um, in any event, you can see I've put up there three of Squire's drafts. And in the area where that bend of the river goes up and then makes like a 90-degree turn to come down, and it shows that sort of half-circular earthwork, mm-hmm. that's the earthwork that we're looking at in this last remaining wow. undeveloped section. Wow. Um, I see what you're saying. Now, the reason that it's undeveloped is that that property is owned by a gravel mining company, which you can see on the far yep, yep. Right. far right. They are mining that whole thing away, and eventually they're going to get to the other side and mine that away unless something somebody steps in and does something about it. What's so, that gravel from geologically? It's just, uh, you know, limestone, limestone, limestone gravel pit. From, the, from the river. This is right along the river. I was so. going to say, is, there, is the river just— Right like, to the top up there. It's right there. Yeah, it's right up there. That's water. Right up at the top left. Uh, it's, it's the oh, Scioto River. That's okay. water. Yeah, I see it. All right. So I just thought that, you know, you could kind of see that particular earthwork. That's too wild. And I just happened to stumble <clears throat> upon that through this work that, you know, Gary said, hey, can you help me out? You, I know you've done, you know, got this stuff. So when I started to apply these draft maps to you know, looking at Google satellite shots, I rediscovered that earthwork there. So. That's so very cool. Uh, all right. So here's another panel of, you know, four different earthworks. Um, if you it, this is this is another plate in ancient monuments. Uh, we have. Um, whoops, I, went, I didn't want to pull that up for a second. So up in the upper left, that is the bomb earthworks that is in private hands. Then. Uh, the upper right is the East Works, uh, which is that one I just mentioned. <clears throat> then on the lower left is the Sipe uh, Mound Earthworks. That is part of the mm-hmm. um, National Park Service's Hopewell Culture National Park. It's yep. one of the units. And the fourth one uh, in the lower right is the Frankfurt Earthworks, of which Almost nothing is exists of that, except for largely one large mound preserved by the Archaeological Conservancy. Uh, but the geometric earthworks part of it is pretty much overlaid by the village of Frankfurt. Uh, but you'll notice that you have now, instead of just one huge map on a page, you have now four maps on a page. And that was due to uh, the Smithsonian started to put pressure on Squire to control the costs of the book. Mm. 
when they originally allocated funding for the book, the trustees of the Smithsonian allocated $1,000 in 1847 money to make this book. Um, and they blew through that in a hurry. Oh, I bet. And so uh, Joseph Henry went back to the board and they allocated another $3,000 and they blew through that. <laughs> and so they the, the trustees were getting fed pretty, up. pretty fed up with yeah. it. Uh, in modern money, it cost more than $100,000 to yeah. produce the illustrations for this book. Um, huge amount of money to produce this book. And uh, they basically, the order came down from on high. You need to start consolidating these. And so what I found amongst Squire's papers was that he had full page maps of each one of these. And then the order came down. You got to cut that down. So then he went to two to a page. And then the case, no, 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 that's not good enough. Then he went to four to a page. So I'm going to show you some of the other illustrations. So uh, it, there's two to a page there. So you can see the differences that, that he has there for the two on the, you know, that ended up on the right in ancient monuments was a full page with two drawings on it. Um, I'll, he actually has a, a full page of, of uh, each one of those. The, there's that East works as a full page. Now, what's important about this particular drawing is uh, archaeologists actually never really understood exactly where this earthwork was located because on Squire's other city map, it you know it's wildly out of scale and it's kind of fuzzy as to where that is. The city hadn't extended that far yet, so there's no roads or anything, no marks. Where, but this one has exact measurements. It has exact measurements to other buildings that were in the area. It has the names of the peoples who own those buildings. It it shows a lot of additional details. We I now can map this exactly to where this was in the city. Also, at the very bottom, Squire gave it a name, not the East Works, as the archaeological community has talked about for all these years, but he called it the Station Prairie Works. Now, if you don't know your Ross County history or your Chillicothe history, you might not understand what that, why that name is important, but the Station Prairie is named for this prairie area along the river, and when the city was founded by Nathaniel Massey, the first place that they went was on this prairie, and they built a little station there, and that became known as Prairie Station, which eventually became the city of Chilcothy. They then eventually named that prairie the Station Prairie. That's why Squire named this the Station Prairie Works, because that was still in existence when Squire and Davis were around. Wow. And so I call it the Station Prairie Works because Squire called it the Station Prairie Works, but they don't say anything. They don't give any name in ancient, in ancient monuments of the Mississippi Valley. Later archaeologists named it the East Works because it's on the east side of Chilcothy. So now this has a name. Prairie Station Earthworks, y'all. Prairie Station. Love it. That's so way cooler. That's just, you know, one of those 
little historical details that you find that Jeff, I think how is do kind you of just, important. Oh my gosh, man. So he, I want to show like, this one uh, really specific. So That's the planes, right? The planes is the one that's in the on center. The, the one that is on the left <clears throat> is the one that I want to talk about. So that's called the Dunlap Works. And if you know of the Mound City Earthworks in Chilcothy, this is north of that. Okay. Okay. And um, it was the northernmost one on Squire's map. Um, but I want to show you Squire's original drawing of this, or his survey of it, compared to the published lithograph. You can see that the published lithograph is like a parallelogram in which the uh, main part of the parallelogram goes from the upper left towards the lower right. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So. What the hell is going on there? There, that's a serious I'm, difference. I'm, whoa. That is a on. monumental it's serious literally difference. The entire direction of this parallelogram, or I guess it more, looks more like a rhombus now or something like that. Yeah. You know. Um, so you have pointing the Squire's opposite. final illustration versus the lithograph. And this is what I mean about this has real world archaeological implications. Are we looking at. The, if, if it's Squire's original survey is the way the earthwork is laid out versus the one that's on the left, that, there's all kinds of, of real-world archaeological implications about trying to locate where this earthwork is, where those walls are located. They're wildly different. The parallelogram is now going from the lower left to the upper right instead. Right. And if you look at all of those full Chillicothe map surveys, all of those drafts, show what is on the right, not what is published on the left. And so even on um, Davis's uh, drafts, it shows how it is on the right, not how it was published on the left. So that means that the lithographers, in trying to take that and mirror image it, Didn't they do a good messed job. up. <laughs> they messed that they up. They messed up the mirror. Okay. That's what it looks like is... It's, it's they they just you're went, over budget you're under well, pressure well well it looks like they just didn't mirror it at all right. like it did the reverse effect once you actually lay it down to make the print yeah so they just made the exact copy it's kind of in a way yeah. but it's still beyond that it's still <laughs> really really there there are lots of differences up. there's lots of differences between these yeah so this is what I mean about why I thought that. Publishing this material was so important. Mm -hmm. Was but this has never been published the, before? The bottom corner not droops way down. Yes, and that's interesting. Like the diamond actually is pulled way out on mm -hmm. the bottom right corner, and yeah. then that bottom right corner on the right, which is connected to this causeway pathway road, I guess you could call it, mm -hmm. is like pushed way way up. They're flipped. Yeah. It's flipped. If you took that and laid but, them on each other, the diamonds so, would match up. The roads would match up, but the diamonds would. It's it's a it's a it's a it's, it's, but not really. It, yeah, no. it wouldn't it wouldn't really be the same. It would it, be it, close. Well, just the maybe the diamond part, but yeah, all the, the rest road. of it, yeah. they think they got it generally right. Yeah, this but is but weird. it's 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 significantly different. And so this is what I mean. Why this this material? Well, is so and even up top to on show. the circular with the little now, inlet on that is off. Have you, you know, caused? Filter. 
a freak out? Has the word gotten out about any of this? I don't Do you know. Have, I, <laughs> I mean, mean as our I've show, already moved on to I'm already in the process of editing the next book that I'm publishing, which is a book about the Portsmouth earthworks written by Emily Aldrich. Emily's great. And so uh, Emily has been working on her manuscript. She started during the pandemic and she has finished up her manuscript and we're in the process of editing that now. And so that'll be published sometime uh, early next year. Nice. Um, so I've already, you know, I just published this and I'm on to the next project. I just got to keep going. I got You're so much stuff I got to work on. But so I don't really know what we got to get you on a podcast tour, Jeff. This, I don't, this has to get out there. Yeah, I, I don't know what the archaeological community is saying much about my book at this point. I haven't gotten a lot of feedback. The feedback that I have heard from a handful of people that um, in the archaeological community that have started looking at the book is they said it's a great read. It is so dense, they have not been able to get through much of it at this point. Um, And it's been out for about, uh, you know, six weeks now or seven weeks. Um, They said that it it, it is just so incredibly dense worth of material that, and, you know, it's 1,300 pages. They they, they haven't even made through volume one yet. You know, they're just working their way through it. Is part of the pitch of this this version or this kind of, like, uh, publishing, like, feeling like, Esquire and Davis, like going on the journey of like getting through the book itself. It's that dense. Like <laughs> well, you were journeying along. It took me about as long to write this and put this together as it took uh, Squire and Davis to do their their entire partnership. You know, was about two years, and so, so wow. that's about how long it took me to put this together. Of course, their book was about three hundred and fifty pages, and I added another thousand pages to that. So, uh, you know, I kind of tripled what what that outcome was. Uh, <laughs> Just so ever so three. slightly calling them you know, slackers. If you, eh? take, you take all, you know, volume one, two uh, together, three, oh. uh, that all that combined is is about triple the original book. So, Jeez. has your buddy oh. Graham Hancock seen any of this? Well, he's been traveling. I, I I notified him that the book was out. I don't know if he's uh, you know going to take a look at it soon or not. I know that he is. He just recently reported on he was um, down in the uh, Peruvian Amazon looking at mm. large geometric earthworks yes. just like these. Yeah, really? Yeah. Um, and so he and I have had, kind of, you know, some conversation about this kind of thing in the past. Yeah. Um, I have kind of some hypothesis about maybe possible connections between the these two oh. different kinds of sets of earthworks. Wow. Um, That's interesting. Very. Yeah. I, I mean— I don't write about it in the book, but uh, I have a hypothesis about that. Something to explore further for the later. Talk to, yeah. An, to yeah. another episode for sure. Yeah. So here is an earthwork which is on that Chillicothe map called the Cedar Bank Earthworks. This is now under threat of development. This is also one of the few remaining untouched earthworks that's in private hands. Um, but recently, the landowner of this has announced that he is going to build a gigantic. Uh, sports and entertainment complex oh, here Jesus. Uh, with some kind of sports fields and uh, hotel business. And, uh, I, you know, this is literally immediately north of the Hopeton Earthworks, which is one of the units of the UNESCO World Heritage Site, you know, Hopewell Culture Earthworks. Uh, and this is about ready to be destroyed. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see if enough uh, people are interested in preserving these earthworks. Obviously, I would advocate for it. Um, those major walls of that square are uh, 
as intact as any of the other earthworks. In fact, really? those are better intact than the earthworks at the Hopeton Earthworks, which is preserved by the National Park Service, literally less than a mile to the south. Um, oh, we got to help preserve these. You, I mean, I, yeah. I will so, 100%. Um, the Heartland Earthworks Conservancy is involved in trying to preserve these. I th- don't know what the effort is at this point. Um, I haven't really heard much of an effort grassroots coming up because you're you're pressuring a you know a private landowner at this point. Uh, the property isn't for sale. You know the guys are. You got to speak to their better nature and kind of try to figure out can how you get do us you... in contact with some people that are at least talking about organizing. Um, I'd po- like to possibly. Raise I mean, the Gary, awareness. Gary, Gary's probably really Gary Argo. We need to have Gary on. Mm-hmm. We have, uh, for those of you, uh, why don't we, we, why we, do don't we help you a... redirect that vision from tearing it down and doing that into like building it up somehow and bringing awareness to it? Uh, I, I have a map that I include in the book um, that was um, done around uh, 1810 to 1815-ish time frame that actually shows, you see down at the bottom of this map, that circle and the little square platform yep. mound, yep. and there's like another little J-shaped, yep. upside-down J-shaped earthwork. Those appear on the Hopeton earthwork map because that's how close they are. It's literally one continuous set of earthworks. The Hopeton part has been preserved, but this part hasn't. But it's really all part of the it's same piece of complex. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's it's really a shame that this portion of it might get developed in this day and age with you know all the knowledge that we have that these earthworks are there. It's just like, you know. So if you wanted to go see this, what would you contact the landowner, or is it That's, right now? Oh, I bet you. I bet you. It's they not a park, I would, right? I don't know. Yeah, I. I wouldn't think the landowner would give you permission, but you wow. know. But it's not unless you can really right. butter them up, right? Damn. Give you 150 bucks. So in any event, there is uh, Squire's draft. Now, uh, interestingly enough, you see that sort of long earthwork uh, yeah. next to the square. Yeah, you can see that on the other one. Um, the ends of those the, those drawings are different. Um, Squire shows his has a little more rounded end. Yeah, but uh, in the published lithograph, they show that as a kind of a a really long rectangle, and it's really not a rectangle. They have rounded ends to those that earthwork, and there's a bunch of those that have been found around um, Ohio. And nobody really knows what those are or what they were used for or anything. Uh, they're super rare. Um, are they kind of like the walls around the Newark earthwork in a way? Because you do kind of see those walls around the Great Circle at least. Not really. The uh, early Ohio archaeologists called them the way that the, there's a famous one outside of Stonehenge called the Stonehenge Curses. And so they used to call these the Curses. Oh. Um, based on the same sort of archaeological style, if you look at them on a map. But nobody really knows what these were for, but they're really long parallel lines that are enclosed at either end, uh, you know, with a kind of a circular end uh, enclosure. Mm -hmm. There there are a bunch of these that have been found around Ohio, and this is just one of those. Um, You can notice that there's a road that goes through that. Even in Squire and Davis' time, there was a road that went through that. And that is now uh, kind of the end of Bridge Street uh, in Chilcothy as it merges into, you know, it merges with uh, 23, just a little about a mile to the north of this. Um, So that's the location of that. 
why would they build these type of it's just when i look at these old drawings mm-hmm. i'm just it's like why would they build they like the way they are yeah. these circles these squares like what now, was the point uh one of the interesting features of this site is that it, it incorporates two pyramids uh, these are flat top pyramids. There's the one that's inside of the square that's kind of a rectangular yeah. version. And then there's that one down by that circular feature down below. Uh, so these pyramidal platform mounds, um, th- th- you saw them in the Marietta painting. Uh, they they had a couple of those in Marietta. Mm-hmm. They had those here. Etowah. They had those at the Bomb like, like Earthworks. Etowah had one. style? Yes, like down but, in Georgia, but, but not much not lower. Big, not yeah, those much lower to the I ground. I got you. Okay. Uh, so mm. they're you know they're pyramidal shaped flat top. Yep. You know, kind of like maybe something was on top of it, like a building. More perhaps? than likely. Yeah. Yeah. More than likely. Some kind of a temple structure. Mm-hmm. Man, it's so trippy. I uh, I actually in the book talk about a story about this because there's another drawing of this that I found. Of course, I don't know that I have it in here. Uh, this is just another version of, of Squire, a draft that Squire made. Again, How much further away that bottom yeah. one is. Uh, well, you'll notice the orientation of those earthworks down at the bottom are different, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and so, you know, again, real-world archaeological implications. Where are those earthworks actually located? <laughs> you know, is it in this orientation or is it this orientation? Looking for buried I mean, treasure. Where's the real X? Yeah, mark the spot well, type I thing. I wouldn't. You know, be searching for buried treasure, but no. But I mean, just having the accurate locations of like, if we yeah. go there, can you say with confidence if the remains of the earthwork or you but, know structures um, not there? One of the things you notice here is the path of the river is different, mm-hmm. and you'll notice that the one on the right, there's a much bigger bottomland down there than what appears on the left. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the drafts that I have that Squire uh, showed showed that there was another one of those long curses-type earthworks in that bottom land. And, uh, mm. and then when you get to the final print, that bottom land is gone, and that earthwork is gone. And so it made me wonder, and I question about this in the book, when, did, did the course of the river change at some point at, during the time that Squire was doing the book— and that earthwork down below disappeared. Got washed away. Like, got or washed away. Yeah. Because um, the only record of it is from this other earlier drawing from his field notes, actually. I think, I don't know if I have it in here or not. <clears throat> yeah, here it is. There it is. There it is. So maybe it flooded or something? Wow. And so, you, you, yeah. So there's another, you know, kind of low bottom land down there. And, uh, you, you know, you kind of wonder about that. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to episode 53, part one, Rediscovering Ohio's Ancient Earthworks with our buddy Jeffrey Wilson. We appreciate Jeffrey so much for coming in studio. This episode was so epic. We had to split it up into two parts. If you guys enjoyed this one, let us know in the comments. Hit us up on Instagram, Facebook. Let us know. Uh, We have the part two of this episode is going to be airing next week on Monday, so keep an eye out for that. Um, You guys can follow us at The Strange Road on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Um, You also can find Jeffrey's work. Everything's, all his links are in the description. Uh, But Friends of Serpent Mound is uh, is Jeffrey's group. And you can check everything they're doing out at serpentmound.org. And then also their Facebook group is Friends of the Serpent Mound. So go check out Jeffrey and all his work. And also Jeffrey's new book, Ancient Monuments of the Mississippi Valley Expanded Edition. Guys, this is an epic, epic book. 
And so you're not going to want to miss out on this is only a, a, a chunk, a very, very, very tiny chunk of all the information Jeffrey has rediscovered. These maps, these drawings are just unbelievable. I also want to tell you guys about the second annual Frogman Fest coming up. March 2nd, 2024, The Strange Road will be back out there helping out in the AV room. And also, we're going to have a booth this year. So come say what's up to us. Come say hi. Uh, Tell us what you think about the show. We love the input. Uh, But we want to meet you guys. So come and hang out. Uh, It's going to be a great time. There's so many great speakers. Uh, But first, let me tell you, the Frogman uh, Festival, you can find all the information at frogmanfestival.org. Uh, the conference center is the Oasis Conference Center in Loveland, Ohio. Tickets are $17.50 for adults in advance, $20 at the door, and kids 12 and under are free. Uh, the event is from 9.30 a.m. to 6 p.m. There's also some uh, special movie screening that's going to be happening. Uh, that's uh, going to be coming out. More information on that, but go check out Frogman Festival. We appreciate the hell out of each and every one of you guys. We're signing off. Peace, love, and chicken grease. We're out.